Hello, hello. Welcome to our Job to STEM podcast. I'm also pumped to introduce you to Alicia Johnston, a researcher in molecular biology. He's been involved in a vast array of research projects ranging from craniofacial development through chromatin conformation to cartilage regeneration. He's currently doing research at USCLA, analyzing important pathways in osteoarthritis, computationally, and also in a wet lab. He volunteers at the West Los Angeles Calvet Senior Living Home and Arthritis Foundation LA. Alicia is also part of the ISEF gang, y'all. He is an SDS scholar, and above having scored science fair awards, he is a recognized speaker and had already published eight scientific papers. I believe we've got a lot of interesting topics to cover today on the pod. So, hi, Alicia. Welcome on board. Mm, thank you. Really excited to be here. You might know how the trail goes. The first question is going to focus on your history, your past with research. So how did you get into the scientific world and what's your STEM story? Yeah, so I guess it really all started when I was um, in sixth grade. My very first experience with science fair was kind of just, I went to a school which which didn't focus on science too much and wanted to see more of what science looks like in real life. Uh, I think I found it through some friends about the science fair and I was like, you know what, I'll check it out. So checked it out, ended up doing a pretty, you know, just a very, very basic project for my first time. But I had an amazing experience at the science fair. And what was really cool is I was able to see some of these, you know, like there were some ISEF level projects at the science fair that I was at. Just seeing those people, seeing like how much impact those types of people can have on society that really just inspired me to keep going. And then really that led to the next year, me doing another actual research project using like uh, cells in vitro culture kind of thing. And then that really just propelled me to keep doing um, like in vitro high impact kind of research. So, yeah. So if I'm counting well, you've been in the world of research for over or almost a decade now. Counting from Uh, Yeah, I would say like seven years or something like that. Yeah. Wow. Okay. That's an important anniversary. You should celebrate it. (laughs) Yes. And I've also mentioned in the beginning that you've been involved in a lot of research projects. Um, Could you expand on these works? Yeah. So I think the first, as I said, the first research project I did was very basic and it was, um, it was just something I did at my house. It was really something where I wanted to see uh, what's like some different protein quality. Pretty much like I took chicken and I wanted to see if organic or conventional chicken was pretty much healthier. So did this like little asset and that was able to help me see which one has more protein quality. Once I got through that one and I had some experience, you know, mainly with a lot of the research writing process and things like that, you know, writing papers, um, creating a poster, stuff like that. I was able to start doing uh, some more research projects with like actual uh, cell culture. So that involved looking at something called prolotherapy, proliferative therapy for arthritis. So that really led to all of the science or projects that I ended up doing after that point. So literally from the point of seventh grade all the way through, uh, through like junior year of high school, I was doing projects on something related to um, osteoarthritis, specifically in vitro. Those are the ones that I did for uh, science fair. And then on the side, I was also able to do a couple projects for you know various conferences. Um, there's also another science competition where I did a computational study, and this was mainly looking at different uh, interactions between different proteins within osteoarthritis to better characterize the disease. And finally, I was also able to get involved, once I got to UCLA actually, in two research projects. There was one with, uh, with a professor who works in public health, 
And another one was with a professor who is uh, actually studying osteoarthritis using orthopedics. So for the public health one, we were able to start doing some research on um, glare. Like when someone uh, has like vision issues, right? They'll, they'll have glare um, and they can't really see clearly. So doing re- some research into that and specifically within that, looking at the questionnaires that we provide them when we do the assessments so we can better assess their condition. So it's more like a patient reported outcomes kind of study. And with my projects at the current research lab, um, the name is Dr. Karen Lyons. What I'm doing here is I'm, I guess I have a couple different projects that I'm going on here. I have one that's, again, computational, uh, trying to look at interactions within early stage osteoarthritis to, to determine kind of the progression of the disease. Uh, beyond that, I'm also doing some in vivo experiments where I'm looking to see how mice are reacting to uh, various forms of like poking and stuff like that after they've gotten surgery. And that'll be able to characterize what the disease is like, uh, given various treatments that we're giving them to hopefully slow the progression of arthritis. Many different types of uh, studies from lots of different time periods, I guess. Wonderful. And since you've mentioned osteoarthritis in uh, different research projects, I'm curious, like, where does your passion for treating the disease or finding biomarkers and such derive from? It actually has a few different sources. So I guess what really uh, jump-started it was my uh, my dad had a, uh, when he was in high school, he had a basketball injury, and that led to just his left knee just experiencing continuous progression of osteoarthritis over time he tore like his acl and then there was a bunch of other complications with that and because of that uh by the time he was like 40 or so he was pretty much not able to run and his mobility was definitely very very limited so uh he got some treatments for it and i remember even when i was like 12 years old this is probably when he was like 46 or so uh he was experiencing like so much pain that he could barely even walk so you know, being a 12-year-old trying to experience, like, trying to take care of the house because my dad can't do it, stuff like that really impacted me. Um, and then I want to see, you know, more of what I can do to help people like this because obviously I wasn't the only person who was, uh, who was experiencing having a loved one who's had some condition like this. So that really propelled me for the beginning. And once I started getting involved with the Arthritis Foundation and started seeing so many more people that have this disease, and then even beyond that, when I started working at the Calvet Senior Living Home, where I'm working with veterans who, you know, many of these people have spent their entire lives in the military, just nonstop exercise, you know, like even my stepdad, for example, when he was in the military, he served for probably 35 years or so. He had to wear like, you know, like 40 pound bags, like during hikes, right? I put so much stress, especially on your joints. And then that's, you know, how you kind of start seeing arthritis. So just really all of those different experiences really wanted me to really, I guess, made me into who I am and really drove me to study this disease uh, even more. It's beautiful how that personal experience has shaped you into the person you are today and also into the researcher um, you are at this moment of time. And since you've mentioned how many people are affected by this disease, I know it might sound a little bit weird asking this question, but who is your target audience if you are talking about research? So who are the people uh, who can benefit from that? So you mentioned the militarily, elderly, um, who 
could uh, be the beneficiary of your invention? The largest audience is probably, you know, the elderly, just anyone over really 65 who's done any sort of physical work throughout their lives and haven't been able to maintain their joints too much. Uh, that's probably the biggest audience just because, you know, that's just comes with age, you know. Um, but I think another, definitely some other audiences that are very uh, prominent are definitely athletes because, you know, so many athletes, for example, in uh, in American football or basketball or, you know, soccer, which I know everyone else calls football um, and sports like that, everyone, so many people get so many injuries from like, you know, tearing ACLs from, you know, um, just like from different tricks and things like that within sports, you know, you really put a lot of stress on your joints and that leads to what people usually call post-traumatic osteoarthritis, which is driven from a from some type of injury. So there's that. There's also military. Military, it's more of uh, it's more of something called primary osteoarthritis, which is more of just so much wear on the joints because of just so much continuous exercise that you know you end up with just really degraded joints by like you know, for example, thirty five years of service. So thank you for the explanation. Um, I think it just really shows how uh, many people could uh, find your invention a blessing. And I would like to get more into the scientific key part, if we can say that, um, because I've read that you use HD or hypertonic dexterous injections. Could you expand on this type of therapy? And also a little bit tied into this question, like what's the big plan with your research? So what's the best case scenario you can imagine today? This treatment, hypertonic dextrose, is... I guess it's it's been studied a decent amount, and there definitely is uh, some evidence that it does help to regenerate cartilage. We don't know exactly whether that cartilage is able to last, for example, for five years, ten years, just because the joint is uh, it's so complex, and you know because there's already been so much degradation, it's possible that we can see those those gains start to get um, kind of like degraded over time uh, at a little bit of a faster rate than. A healthy person but pretty much what this this treatment is is uh, you apply a small amount of this hypertonic dextrose into a joint so you inject it and what is hypothesized will happen is that will draw water away from kind of the local areas and then because there's not enough water in those areas it'll start an immune reaction where the immune system will start to repair some of the cartilage that's inside that joint. So that'll be mainly the, the extracellular matrix. And it'll also, um, this is what people hypothesize at least, that some of the cells within that area will start to proliferate also to start um, reactivating and producing more of that extracellular matrix. And that's actually what I did research in because that mechanism hadn't really been known uh, prior to my research. So, so that was one of the parts that I really uh, helped to uncover was that mechanism. Let me qualify that actually. Like I, I didn't discover. I didn't. I would say, um, completely come up with the mechanism. But I was the first one to show like in vitro evidence of that. So before that, no one had really shown any evidence of how the mechanism worked. It had all been hypothesized. So, uh, some of the research that I did was like some of the first to actually give some empirical evidence for that, which I was really glad to be a part of. And I don't know, have, have you touched upon your big plan, the best case scenario with your treatment? Because you said that you were the first one to discover this in a vet lab situation. But if we look back into mm. the distant future, where do you imagine yourself? Are you going to be working on, on this research and expanding it into more you know, in vivo situations? Or would you like to discover in other areas as well? 
Yeah, so uh, thank you for bringing that up again. So I think really with that treatment with hypertonic dextrose, um, I might get back to it once I'm starting, you know, my own lab and like once I become a, a PI myself. But just because I've, uh, I'm in college now and I work in a different lab, that's not something that I've been able to pursue as much now. So ideally what will come from the, tr- the uh, research that I'm doing right now is just more understanding of the osteoarthritis progression because you know people really don't know a lot about how the disease progresses right now um so with this computational study i'm doing i really want to make sure that people that we're able to understand the different um interactions between different proteins and how those uh, interactions will lead to a further progression and you know another part of that is also like the specific cell types within the joint and seeing how those things will interact with each other uh with regards to these proteins so I guess the overall impact with that is this will hopefully provide that first step of understanding the progression. And then because we're able to understand the progression of this disease, uh, we're able to better treat them um, in the early stages, which is what's typically most important for this disease because treating a late stage just isn't really realistic because of how, uh, how complex the degradation process is. I think that it just really reflects on the fact that how many um, or how much part of science is still undiscovered. But I'm happy that you play an essential role in treating and in finding effective solutions for treating this disease. And with that, how do you envision the future of medicine? That's a really good question. I think that there's a couple of different ways that I see this going on. Um, what I really think is would be ideal, and this is what I really uh, hope happens for medicine, is that we start seeing treatments that are very focused on um, addressing the root issues. I know right now, um, I don't know if this is internationally also, but I know at least in America, a lot of the treatments that people are using are typically just pain medication uh, instead of actually treating root diseases. Um, And this is definitely, I know for osteoarthritis, this is a very, very major issue with where um, definitely thousands, I know many people, I I wouldn't give an exact percentage of how many, but it's a pretty large percentage. Of, of these people with osteoarthritis are just getting pain medications because it's, you know, it's the simplest way and they might get some type of other treatment in the future. But because of how complex the disease is, uh, that's kind of just what the standard of care is right now. So I, I really hope that in the future, medicine really does focus on treating the root diseases. And this might involve a lot of, you know, regenerative medicine um, treatments kind of thing. But that's something I'm really not sure about. But that's kind of what I hope for uh, with medicine really changing the perspective or how medicine treats um, a lot of diseases. Um, And I can also attest to the fact I've been working in the pharmacological industry, and it's really Mm -hmm. about treating solely the surface symptoms and how great it would be to create effective preventative measures um, to slow down or even prevent totally the disease. So it's really important. Yeah, that's good. That's, That's pretty much exactly like what I was thinking. So... Yeah. Tied into the big picture kind of questions, what is the greatest challenge our world faces right now, according to you? And if you could have a plan of some sort, how could we overcome it? Yeah. Um, so I'll talk about this more in like a medical perspective because that's you know what I know best. Uh, I don't know like anything about politics or anything like that, so I can't go into that. But I think uh, with regards to medicine, I think the biggest challenge is probably um i'd actually say it's it's probably the same thing that i was mentioning was uh in the field of medicine making sure that the treatments really are focused on 
treating the patient as opposed to just masking the pain or uh, I guess really curing the disease because you know so many of these different diseases that people are experiencing now uh, people might be able to get some type of treatment which is which is amazing you know uh, especially for something you, you know like HIV where it is untreatable and there are able to be treatments that do help to uh, really make sure that they're not um, people that have the disease that are positive they won't be able to transmit it and they're also not experiencing the symptoms that's really really amazing but because of there's there's so many different diseases that are just require like a lifetime of medication I think really making sure that some type of solution I guess really future types of solutions do help to treat underlying diseases and hope and hopefully will help these people to get off of medication I think that's the most important thing but we'll see if that happens you know also have the brutal side effects I don't know about uh, medications mm -hmm. specifically but what are the most common and most severe cases you've experienced um, in this field or in in terms of osteoarthritis the one that's most commonly used is just, you know, basic uh, pain medications such as aspirin. This is non-steroidal anti-inflammatory uh, drugs. And those ones, it'll typically just be, you know, you're taking so much medication, it's going to be bad for your liver, things like that. Once you get into uh, corticosteroids, which are able to um, kind of mitigate the pain for probably three months or so at a time, same thing, you know, you get a lot of, you get, you get, uh, some liver issues. And then with that, you also get actually increased progression of osteoarthritis. So even though the pain's going to be going away, the actual disease is going to be getting worse. And that's just because uh, when we're treating with something like, um, like a corticosteroid, we're, we're eliminating, we're eliminating the immune system in the area and the patient is starting to do more activity. So because we don't have any sort of, any sort of protection there, and because we're starting to do more activity, it's just going to be overall less healthy in that area. And then once we get into um, opioids, then we end up with, you know, the really major issues with addiction. So that's really what we want. We really want to avoid that just because um, when people do get prescribed opioids, especially for long periods of time, you know, they end up getting really addicted. There's so many issues uh, with, you know, overdose and things like that here in America. So that's, um, that's probably the most serious side effect that I would say that comes with uh, osteoarthritis uh, as it is today. Yes. And creating um, an effective therapy would prevent all of that, that kind of ripple effect of the disease becoming more serious and the, also the treatments and its side effects also exacerbating the condition. Now into a lighter topic, you've competed on various national and international platforms. We've actually been at ISO 2019, so I mm -hmm. guess that was one of the major highlight moments in terms of um, the scientific fairs, but what would you include in your STEM highlights reel? Yeah, I, I would definitely say that ISF 2019 was probably, it was definitely the biggest highlight for me. Um, even though I did end up going to ISF 2020 because of COVID, it wasn't, it wasn't actually a competition. Um, it was just more of like an online platform where we could kind of sort of meet people, but obviously we couldn't have that same person, that uh, person to person connection kind of thing. So I would definitely say ISEP was my biggest time. Um, there's actually one other one that was really fun for me. It was called Biogenius. It was something specific to, I think that year is specific to America. And in that one, it was, it was nice because it was a pretty small venue. It was only 14 students from across, uh, across the nation. And there I was able to meet some really close friends. And, you know, I still keep in touch with some of those friends every now and then, which that was, 
I think the really good thing about that was definitely the fact that it was smaller and the people who did host it, they really wanted to make sure that it was, um, it felt pretty, it felt close, you know, and because of that I was able to, you know, have a really good time with them. They did a lot of games and stuff like that with us, even though it was all online. So that was definitely really fun. And I guess STS also, yeah, Science Talent Search. When I, I just remember when I got the, uh, well, first of all, let me say that that application is insane, right? Like I remember doing that application. It was my final application was 98 pages long. So I put so much time into that. Like I remember also just doing college apps at the same time. And it was just, it was so much work. I was like, is this even going to be worth it? And because like I, I thought I had no chance at this thing, right? Because I saw my friends and I had so many friends that were just, you know, insanely qualified, so much more qualified uh, than I thought I was. But yeah, when I when I finally got that email saying congratulations, I was like, wow, like I was not expecting this. It was it was definitely worth it. So that was I think that email and then even just the resources that were available to me after being a science talent search scholar, uh, that was definitely another big highlight. And honestly, I got to give credit to my very first science fair also. Um, when I was in sixth grade, you know, 11 years old, that was when I experienced my first science fair. And that was the time where uh, even though I didn't have an amazing project, I I was able to give a pre- good presentation. And I think because, you know, I was really in, genuinely interested in the project, I was able to end up getting first place in uh, in my division uh, during middle school uh, for my category, I guess. So that really just, I, I won't ever forget that moment where I was just, I got called up on stage for first place. And like, that was literally the best feeling I've, I'd ever have. Like, you know, it, it was definitely bigger than, you know, winning um like Project of the Year at California Science Fair, stuff like that, right? That was definitely the moment where I was just like, oh my gosh, this is like, this is surreal. So, and that's ultimately what jump-started this whole career of science. So, yeah. The first, that defining moment. Yeah, that first one was, it was something else for sure. That's so great. And it's also so interesting how you expand upon like how you were not really focused on the technicalities, but you're passionate about your research. So you think that's your kind of secret ingredient in getting that first prize at your first uh, science fair. And what's interesting is that in Hungary, when we, you know, analyze people from different countries and we are preparing for international platforms, we always say that Americans are the most passionate bunch. And we see it in a very positive light because when you compare you guys with, I don't know, and notice discrimination here but that's just the norm we've seen or the patterns that people from Asia where the educational system is very I believe reward based and in America you get an afford for participating even you know that really translates into how you present your project so um, I guess we still have a lot to learn from you guys I guess so I I think it was really I guess even even at the international platform I think that even really played a role I remember, I mean, she's not American, but I think the girl who won like first place in my category was Australian. And I remember like listening to her presentation and she was like, she was really passionate. And I had some other friends who also got like, you know, really high placement. And I think, I think that was a pretty big part of it. So yeah, what, what can I say? You know, the, I think passion was definitely a really big part of, of science fair. Uh, definitely, you know, when I remember competing. So yeah. Yes, absolutely. A good fuel. 
You've mentioned this before a little bit about your volunteering work. So you volunteered at the Arthritis Foundation LA, and now you're also currently involved in voluntary work, um, as I mentioned in your intro. But could you share some of your most memorable moments or lessons you've gained during these experiences? Yeah, I I definitely think that the most memorable times for me have definitely been at this uh, senior living home that I've been working at, um, volunteering at. And I think that's really because some of these these veterans have just such insane mind-blowing stories you know like i i remember i met one guy uh i think he's like at the time when i met him he was 102 and so i think he's like 103 now but he was actually there at d-day um he was a he was a scuba diver um like checking if there are mines uh like in the in normandy that area so hearing like that story hearing these like stories from people who were in my history books i was like it it's crazy that these people like were literally there and experienced it, you know. Uh one of the one of the guys I visit the most actually, I see him probably, you know, ten hours a week or something like that. Um with him actually, he was he was also serving during World War II. He's ninety eight years old now. And it's funny because we actually have some common interests. We both did a lot of exercise when we were growing up. Um I do a lot of like calisthenics kind of thing, try to see what I can do with my body, like in terms of flexibility and just body weight kind of thing. And he was actually able to do like so much of the stuff that I'm able to do now, but, you know, way better uh, when he was even into his 40s. Actually, he was he stayed fit a really long time. But even with him, like hearing his stories of being a uh, being like what they called, I think, in the box uh, on the ship back in like, you know, the 1940s. That was something really, really cool to hear about. So just hearing these stories from these veterans and also just, you know, really hearing uh, there are experiences with osteoarthritis. I think those have probably been the most memorable experiences for me. But I also have to say that working with the Arthritis Foundation, I also met a lot of cool people there. And that's actually where I started meeting, I guess, the first groups of um, of patients who had osteoarthritis. And, you know, moving from there to the, the Calvet Senior Living Home, I was able to expand a lot on some of those things that I've been seeing, but just at a such such a larger scale. So. Yeah. Amazing. Like a doctor gains experiences from interacting with a vast array of patients. You are essentially doing the same. Like you get a better understanding of the conditions by uh, looking at different cases. And Mm -hmm. how incredible is that you can experience history in front of your eyes. I've just been reminded of the Netflix series called Timeless. I don't know if you've heard about it, but it's basically where they solve crimes in the past and they travel back each time to different episodes during American history. So you don't even need a time machine. You can just go to the senior home. Oh, wow. Yeah, <laughs> that's that sounds really interesting, actually. Yeah. A little bit on the publications part, because I saw that you didn't only publish on osteoarthritis, but also on COVID-19. Um, and you have several publications mm-hmm. under your belt, I believe eight. And I am curious, like, which has been the most memorable to work on? And also the question tied into this topic, what tip would you give to someone planning to publish? Because it can be an excruciating process. Yeah, it's it's definitely a lot of work. And I know even right now I'm working on I'm I guess I'm working on three publications actually. One's in review right now. Another is uh is definitely in the early stages. I'm still I'm I'm actually still working on giving a conference presentation for that. And then the last one, um I think I'm gonna be like six authors, something like that on there. But that one's also like kinda early on, um, in the publication stage, I guess. But I would just say that the 
the one that definitely had the biggest impact on me is probably um, it's the one published in 2021. It's called Hypertonic Dextrose Stimulates Chondrogenic Cells to uh, Deposit Collagen and Proliferate. That one was just really impactful because, you know, I was first author, which always feels good because that was that was the research that I'd actually done. Um, that was actually the research that I'd done for ICEF 2019 and also, uh, I guess, ICEF 2020. So combining that, that process of just writing that paper and then just getting the reviews back was so much work, though. So I would say if for people that want to get published, um, just making sure that you have a really professional quality manuscript uh, when you go into the publication process and just being ready for the reviews also, I think, is something really important because those reviews are definitely pretty tough. So uh, and I, would, I would even say for that, right, like there are a lot of the reviews, some of them are really simple. They're just like change this word kind of thing. But then there are also some that are very like open ended and responding to a review uh, critique like that takes like takes days so just being ready for that that's probably the most difficult part but even just being able to accept that some um some journals won't even look at your your manuscript you know like this has this last one that i was that's in review right now actually uh we sent it to i think probably two or three journals already and the first one actually didn't even look at it the the editor was just like this doesn't fit bye um, you know, that type of thing. So just being able to accept that and just continuing on being persistent with that, I think is definitely the biggest thing. So yeah, it's it's definitely a definitely growth process, though, I'd say. Yeah, a humbling process. Absolutely. For sure, yeah. And, and also just trying to see, I believe, the editor's perspective, because I believe when we're writing a research paper, we have our own mindset and how we want things to work out and sound. And there comes another person who might be on a completely different side and, you know, who tries to nitpick your work. It's, it's definitely hard to face criticism. And then that it boils down to, to actually reaching a common ground. Now into the if question department. The first one is if you had a mic, a physical mic in your hand and you could talk to all the young people today, what would your message be to the youth of today, essentially? Wow. Um, that's, I I think the, the biggest thing that I would definitely say is, um, well, also this, keep in mind that I haven't, I haven't talked to too many people internationally. So this is more focused to the students that I've met um, primarily in America, I guess just because of who I've met. Um, I would say the biggest thing is don't get too caught up in college admissions. Uh, I know that all of my friends, we were all stressing out like crazy, like all of senior year. And even before that, you know, definitely like the years before that, uh, when we were in, I guess, even middle school, we were talking about college admissions and all of high school. It was always like, you know, did I get that one? Did I get a B in class? That was really bad. Um, cause you had to get straight A's to like, you know, what, what I thought at least was you had to get all straight A's to make it to college. Right. I remember I got my first, my first semester actually in high school, I got two B's and I thought that it was game over. I thought there was no way I was going to make it to, you know, any school, like, you know, definitely not going to make it to Harvard, definitely not going to make it to any of these schools. I, I thought UCLA was out of the picture. Right. Um, but yeah, just, just really focusing on what you like doing, I would say during high school, and kind of knowing kind of what you want to do instead of doing everything for the college admissions, right? Like, 
I guess that I had a couple friends who did a lot of um, who did a lot of things simply for college admissions, and it ended up not actually working for them because the colleges don't want to see that. They want to see that you have drive and you have motivation and you have a sense of direction, you know. And I think really focusing on that and making sure that, you know, you have definitely the basics in place, but you don't spend too much time focusing on just trying to have the perfect ap- application for all of high school and stressing yourself out over something that, you know, really just comes down to a high degree of chance and just arbitrary. I guess arbitrary, I guess is the right word. Yeah, something like that. So really just focusing on that. So yeah, that's that's probably the biggest thing I would say is just don't get too concerned about college admissions and your future because, you know, you have so much time to figure it out still. And talking about college applications, you've mentioned drive and motivation. I guess that could channel through most effectively through your essay. So would you say mm-hmm. that writing your essay is the pivotal moment or do you see it's more of a holistic approach when it comes to reviewing your application? Yeah, I think it really depends on the school. I know for most of the private schools um, out here, a lot of it is um, is based off of that holistic approach, you know, and some of the, the um, I guess the, the very selective um, schools that I applied to that were private, they did look at that and I think they really did appreciate that I had that that holistic approach that I had that motivation and had a sense of direction going into school um but ultimately you know I ended up at UCLA and just because of how UCLA is set up that's not actually something that they look at too closely they definitely look at your essays for sure um but so much of it is just because of just making sure they have the grades and the I guess yeah the grades and then back when the SAT was still a thing the SAT um I know they they made it optional now but having those things um and then for me like I took a bunch of classes during high school that were at a college that were at community college and I think that definitely also helped is just making sure that I had I guess a good transcript um probably the biggest thing but then also definitely to some degree the essays for sure these are all great tips so I believe anyone listening uh would benefit from that especially if they're in the U.S. or if they're an international student and planning to apply for the U.S. because I, I know since I've also applied to the U.S. that it can be quite a long process. The next questions are, if you were a czar of legislation, what would you change about our society and why? So you don't need to go into mm. politics. Um, it can be anything. I think the medical, pro- the clinical process of creating, of creating new treatments, um, that's something that I think could be changed. Is I think a lot of the drugs that are used, which I, I totally understand because everything is so experimental uh that the process of getting treatments out there is like you know a 10-year process kind of thing usually but i think hopefully being able to accelerate that just with a little bit more freedom in terms of those treatments because so many of these people are for example dying from different types of cancer right and if we don't get this this treatment immediately they're going to die so i think hopefully doing something to make sure that that's able to be accelerated i think is something that i would definitely uh be happy to I would definitely care if that would if that could be something I could change. So hopefully death will be written into the presidential plan of the next election. And the next one is if you could have dinner with anyone living today or from the past, who would you invite and why to your VIP dinner party? Yeah, I think definitely one person that I really, really respected throughout history is someone named Joseph Lister. Um, If you've heard of like Listerine, that's named after him. Um, he was, he was actually one of the first, uh, doctor, I think he was the first doctor actually to really recognize 
the impact of uh, of infection and just being sterile. Um, he was like, I think he was the first surgeon to ever wash his hands. And you looked at the death rates after his surgeries and they were like, they were so much lower than these different people. And before, before he really just started thinking about washing his hands, right? And people used to think it was like something called miasma, which was like dirty air kind of thing, bad air. And he started washing his hands and people stopped dying. And people were like, what the heck is this guy doing? That he's, he's doing something different. He's like, I'm literally just washing my hands. And he, he got a bunch of flack for it. People were getting mad at him because they're like, why are you washing your hands? That's so weird. Like, you're such a weird person for that. And, you know, he would do it and it would save people's lives. So just being able to discover that thing and, you know, really do something so big for the medical field that was at that time, believe it or not, very controversial. Uh, that's something that I really respect about him. And then also just like, how he lived his life outside of that, you know, even though he did, uh, he was pretty famous after that in his time because of this major impact that he had on the medical field. Um, he stayed humble, you know, he really wanted to make sure that I guess that he still like lived a, a good life. And, you know, I, I know some of these other celebrity doctors, they end up becoming a little, a little bit inflated, I guess, uh, once they start getting fame. But he was definitely someone that really stuck to his roots and really made sure that the people around him stayed loved, you know, that he lived a good life outside of that. So that's something I really respect about him. That's so important because it's true that many scientists can get really caught up in their professional work, neglecting the personal aspect of life. And since you've mentioned Lister and how one physical lab that is unquestionable today has changed the course of medicine, um, I wondered, have you heard about Semmelweis? He was a Hungarian medic. I'm not sure if I have. <laughs> he actually discovered the same thing. I don't know simultaneously or when Lister did. I believe in the 19th century, so they must have been very close in time. But he also did the same because okay. doctors, um, after dissecting dead people, basically, went on to help women in their labor with the same unwashed hands oh, no. and babies contracted the diseases they died and also the mothers lost their lives and he was the one who um actually made it a rule i believe in either vienna or in budapest for the doctors to wash their hands before procedures and such so there is this hungarian tie wow that's I'm really glad he discovered that, but that's crazy to think about that, you know, that doctors were doing those types of practices just because of the, the day and age that they were living in. So, wow, quite unbelievable, yes. And the next part is the this or that, this or that question game. So are you ready? Okay, let's do it. Okay. Excited. The first one is an easy one or not. We'll see. Beach or mountain? Oh... I th okay, I was definitely in my beach phase for the last few months, but I think as of like four days ago, I'm into my mountain phase now. So I'm going to say mountains. So it fluctuates, you would say. Yeah, it, it fluctuates, but I I bought a mountain bike recently. I spent way too much money on that thing. But because of that, I like, I'm obsessed with the mountains now. So mountains. <laughs> All right. It, it's really interesting. Whenever I ask people from, you know, warmer or Mediterranean climates, they all go for the mountain. So I guess we want what is not readily accessible to us. Some uh, yeah. psychological drive. And the next one is uh, 100 days in Antarctica or 100 days on the moon. Oh, 
Oh man, I would say Antarctica, I think, because it just seems, the moon seems a little bit too bland for me, I guess. And Antarctica at least, you know, has some living species on that. So, and it also, you know, I, I kind of like the cold and I want to be able to experience something that's like, that's that cold. So that seems pretty interesting to me, actually. Yeah, nature is natural AC. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, I get it. Like, I wouldn't even go to outer space. I would have the fear of not being able to return to Earth. Really? Yeah, I, I can see that for sure. Yeah. And also, like, the food they serve, so bad. I saw videos on that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. The, the dried space food. I, I remember they had that. Uh, there's, like, a, a science center, like, a science museum out here. And they used to sell that at the museum. And, like... Really? I'm sorry. It it's not good. It's not. Did you try it out? Huh? Yeah. It's it's not good. I I definitely preferred actual food for sure. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Imagine if they served that at a cafeteria. Just this oh no. Friend. That would be tough. And the next one is sweet or spicy. Mm, spicy for sure. Spicy. Food. I love I love so much spicy Chinese food and also spicy food from other countries, but. The mapo tofu is definitely like one of my favorite dishes. So, and it it also has to be genuine though. It can't be like sweet Americanized mapo tofu. It has to be like legit Chinese, like Sichuan kind of style. Which that stuff, that stuff slaps. That stuff's so good. Jin hao shu. Exactly. No, no, no. <laughs> and the no, the fourth one. No more social media or no more messaging apps. Oh man. I would I would definitely say social media because I wait actually wait, sorry what do you mean by messaging apps like WhatsApp kind of thing Fiber or WhatsApp exactly okay so I actually like I don't use any of those apps already um, I just use like iMessage I guess um, so I guess that one because I don't use messaging apps already although I do use I do use WeChat every now and then but I feel like I have other ways to get in contact with my family in China. So I'd probably say probably no more messaging apps, but that's just because I like never use them. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. It's so interesting. Whenever I meet Chinese people, one of their first questions they ask for me is that, do you have WeChat? <laughs> I'm <was> like, no. <laughs> um, and the last one is a car or motorbike. Oh, definitely car. Definitely mm. car. I, I like... I use my car for so many things. It's, I, I honestly don't know what I would do if I didn't have a car right now. Um, because like, I guess I've, I've actually never ridden a motorcycle, but they do seem really fun. But just because like, I ha- I try to carry my bike when I'm with me um, to like go mountain biking. So just being able to have that space in the back of my car uh, where I can just put my, my bike in there. And then even like, you know, if I go on like a crazy road trip, I can like, I have like an SUV, so being able to just put the seats back and just being able to sleep in the back, like that's honestly, that's kind of fun sometimes. So that's something that I, I don't know if I could give that up for a motorcycle. So yeah. It's like part of your being now, your SUV. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's so interesting how we can get so attached to, to our cars because we, we live, I believe, a great amount of time in our cars. And I know that in the U.S., most people use cars to get by because of the distances. So that totally makes sense. 
especially in a place like LA where everything the public transportation is pretty bad here. Uh, not like you know New York has pr- pretty good transportation. I know even SF has decent transportation, but LA like everyone says that you need a car to survive here for sure. Hmm. The LA survival kit. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And the last question that just really wraps up and encapsulates all the things we've expanded upon during this episode is what does science mean to you? Science really represents, um, I guess, advancement and then also kind of just persistence because I think so much of science is just really, is just persisting throughout what you've done so many different things that people have worked on right for for example like einstein when he was doing like theory of relativity that like even though he did he was able to do it in like he did publish multiple things in that one year his miracle year like it was still something that you know took lots of time to develop and you know so many different ideas that have been um discovered and also so many things that have been invented they took so many years to develop and i think so much of that is just based off of persistence you know um without persistence like you know i don't know what science would be like i can tell from my own experience like i don't enjoy writing papers at all but when it came to like writing that paper i i spent like probably 700 to 800 hours like writing a science a research paper you know and like that type of effort i think really if we don't have that type of effort i don't even know what science would be without it so that's probably the biggest thing i would say and then, yeah, advancement is just like, you know, so much of this, it's so much progression and it's not like we're just going to have instant jumps to get to certain places. You know, it's so much about that progression um, that is required to get to where we are today. So those are probably the two biggest things I would say about. That's so cool that you mentioned these two, because a lot of people can go into science or any other field, but if do, if they do not have grit and determination and just this desire to push through, um, the results are going to be lacking. So I think it's great that you touched upon that, especially in today's society where we are, you know, a lot of us are conditioned to be dopamine junkies. Uh, but when you sit through a task, um, it's actually been proven that your dopamine fixes will be better or that you do not require such large amounts because you spend time on that work. So that's great. Thank you for coming on the podcast and sharing all your experiences and messages. So thank you again for joining. It was a blast. Thank you. It was really exciting for me as well. Follow the pod on Instagram and Facebook as well. As always, thank you for taking a few moments of science with us and stay tuned for the next episode.